China. While the second largest global economy has one of the world's lowest levels of education on the planet, trailing nearly all middle-income countries in percentage of high school and college graduates, 70% of the labor force is unskilled, meaning less than a junior high education. Scott Rosella and Natalie Hell authored Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise. Scott is a legend. Alongside being a professor at Stanford, he's the co-director of the Rural Education Action Program, an organization which does some of the best research on rural China and has been able to train up thousands of students, both in the U.S. and China, in field research and quantitative methods. Scott, welcome to China Talk. (laughs) Thanks, Jordan. It's a privilege to be here. So why write this book now? Why in 2021 should the world be focusing on rural China? Yeah, that's a big question. The book was starting to be written about five years ago. I've published about 500 papers, one book. <laughs> it's probably the only book I've been. It took a, took a while, but it's been a book that tries to bring together all of my research and experiences in rural China since the, the mid-2000s. And what I, what I discovered is that China, I often say, It's one of the biggest problems. China has the lowest level of human capital in the entire middle-income world. I don't care if I'm talking the Tsinghua, the Shanghai Chamber of Commerce, or an NGO in Shenzhen, people gasp. And, And I think that at this stage of development, as they're trying to move to high income, this is potentially going to be a a big challenge that they're going to face. So what is the worst case scenario of how this all unfolds. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a development economist, right? I squat in villages, do research, and I talk to teachers and uh, parents and doctors. So you're probably talking to the wrong guy on this. But when I, I do discuss this with political scientists or macroeconomists, I think that it's what happens if China follows the path Mexico happened. You probably don't remember. You're too young. When I was in grad school in the 80s, Mexico was called the next Taiwan. It had grown for several decades in a row at a very rapid rate. OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the rich man's club in the world, they allowed Mexico to enter. Mexico had made it. 70 years of one party rule, you know, there's plenty, plenty of common points. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And that's what I see is, is China going to follow the way to Mexico? In other words, rapid growth. And then they hit this wall. And if they hit this wall, what are the implications? They're a big engine of growth. World growth slows. Legitimacy in China to the Chinese government is through its growth. And if it stalls, how do they gain legitimacy? And these are the kinds of things that, you know, that we worry about. I worry about the kids and the families that I know in rural China that are going to be the ones that take the first hit. And so I, I think there's lots of implications sure. here. So I want to explore the Mexico comparison a little bit. Xi Jinping just like two days ago was bragging about all these gangs that he's been able to crack down on. It. But the fact that he's able to say he cracked down on 80,000 gangs means that there were a whole lot more than 80,000 gangs to crack down on in the first place in the, in the past few years. A few of the potential faults that you um, write about, if China isn't able to increase its workforce and find decent jobs for the for, for the Laobaixing who haven't made it to the cities yet, is, is crime and social unrest. So l- let's unpack the Mexico example a little further. What are your thoughts about criminal enterprise in China and how it feeds into the themes that you talk about in your book. Yeah. I mean, what you don't understand is in the 1980s in Mexico, there was no crime. It's not the Mexico that we know today. In fact, it was quite a safe place. And the Mexican government talked about what a safe place it was as they're growing very fast. Of course, everybody has a job and everybody's employed. And, you know, that's China today. China's not a dangerous place, but Mexico wasn't a dangerous place in the 1980s. What happened in Mexico, of course, is... (laughs) China happened, right? Wages in Mexico went up as everybody got employed and wages went up. The factories in Mexico decided to move, right? The maquiladores, they moved to China. They moved back to the U.S. They moved to elsewhere in the world. And suddenly, within a, a couple years frame time frame, 10 million people lost their jobs. Okay, and that was 20% of the Mexican labor force. And what did those 10 million people do? About half of them or a third of them, they went across the border to the U.S. China is not going to be able to do that. 
So first of all, they went across the border to the U.S. Second is they went into the informal economy. So they started hawking their fruit on the street, washing car windows, doing landscaping. Three, they went into organized crime. And over time, this built, and most people in Mexico don't want to be in crime, but there's going to be a share of people when your future looks so bleak, you're going to finally make a decision. I need to go this way or live in poverty. And that's the decision that they made. And look at Mexico today. And so uh, that's what I'm worried about is as China starts to polarize, right? In China, it's 500 million people that are facing long-term challenges in finding a job. So I think that that's what we're looking for. And can China control the crime where Mexico wasn't being able to? Again, maybe. I would rather see them not having to control the crime (laughs) by having these people become actively engaged in the workforce. Taiwan and South Korea, Japan, Ireland, they don't have huge crime rates. That's because as they moved to high income, the entire labor force was able to participate and be part of the big economic movement. And that's the difference. Scott, how do we reach this point? The story is really clear. If you you know follow a family over time, you see it. Today, if a mom has a baby in her arms, okay, you ask her, what's your aspiration for this baby? We actually ask 1,800 moms that question. And 1,750 of them, over 95% of them says, I want my kid to go to college. (laughs) Okay, seriously. Then the kid grows up and their mom wants to go to college, but they raise them like they're a farmer. And so they keep them safe and they keep them strong, but they haven't stimulated them. Then they, they go into very poor quality nursery schools that are private and, and expensive. And then they go into going to compulsory school, K to K to nine. And it's there's schools like in the US where this is a school district with very low property taxes. So it's a really poor school district and big classes, poor teachers. And of course they're in a they're in a system that has an exam, a single exam for the whole country. It's called at high school level, it's called the Jungkal. And this kid who's Mother wanted him to go to college, is struggling just to learn seventh grade math. And he suddenly looks at himself and says, there's no way I'm going to pass that high school entrance exam, much less the college entrance exam. There's only enough positions in academic high school for half of rural kids to go to. And so they get to this point, they say, do I want to go on in this school system? They drop out. They get to junior high and they finish, maybe even before. But they even at junior high, they barely know how to read. They barely know how to write. They're very disciplined. They're great workers for factories. (laughs) That's what makes great factory workers. You're numerate, literate, and disciplined. But if you want to become bookkeeper for an accounting company or a financial assistant in an investment firm or a bank, you better know math, science, English, Chinese language, computer skills. That's going to get you a job in a high-income economy. And these guys just don't. And so the little baby whose mom wanted them to go to college, he's out of school by ninth grade. Scott? Part of the justification for the one-child policy was the idea that the state could concentrate its resources and raise the quality of the educational opportunities for the fewer kids that would be going through the system. Why didn't that happen? Or why did it only happen in certain regions? Okay, I, I mentioned this a little, but I think it's worth repeating. China has a decentralized education system social services, health, unemployment, pension, everything. But let's look at education as a decentralized education system, just like the U.S. In fact, we have 40,000 school districts in the U.S. China has 40,000 school districts, okay? It's exactly the same. And they're all locally funded. And when school districts are locally funded and you don't have a tax base, right? The school board, in this case, the Bureau of Education, has to make some hard decisions or the county, which, you know, is above the board of education. And the county says, I have really scarce resources. Do I want to spend it on rural kids and their education? Or do I want to build a park and redo the infrastructure in town where urban residents live? 
And then you say, what happens if I give these rural kids a really good education? I take them all to high school. Guess what? You're in a poor county, a rural county. It's not even poor. It's it's just a low-income rural county. If you take 100 kids in a rural county and rural kids and take them to high school level, guess what? Nobody comes back. Less than 5% of the people come back. You're taking these scarce local resources and helping China. This is why it's it's totally incumbent on the central government to completely redo the financing of rural schools. It's And that's the problem, right? Is that, yes, we'd like everybody to go to, to high school. We'd like everybody to go to college. The, the fact of the matter is I don't blame these local <laughs> fiscal officials. They, they're making hard decisions themselves and so, it's not the right system. So Scott, it's it's really about more than money, though, right? New York State spends $24,000 per student and does not have the best educational outcomes in the nation. You wrote a paper looking in particular at vocational high schools showing no significant benefits from attending model vocational high schools as opposed to regular vocational high schools, despite their substantially greater resources. <laughs> Aside from just the tax base, what else is broken about this system. <laughs> okay. This, so if, if you look at our group, the Rural Education Action Program, you'll see we started about oh, 12, 13 years ago, and we were working with high school and college. And then we did all this stuff and not much worked. And so we moved to junior high and then not much worked. And then we moved to elementary school. Yeah, we got some results. But about oh, six or seven, eight years ago, I was actually out in the field with my colleague from the School of Public Health at Emory. Old, he had been a Stanford professor and was one of my mentors when I first started as a professor. And he said, Scott, I think the problem starts way before these schools that we're in. We were visiting schools. He says, I think they start at zero to three. And he actually said by pregnancy. And half of our work now today, Jordan, is in with kids that are zero to three. And, and what we found, we just written a meta-analysis of every paper that's looked at the cognition, the language, the social-emotional skills of children in rural China, and we're finding that almost half of them have delays. And these are delays that are caused because of just the absence of modern parenting. They don't stimulate their kids. They love their kids. Remember, I told you, they all want them to go to college, but they don't know how to raise their kids to be a college student. China has a a saying that's called San Sui Kan Lao, that means at three, you can see the future. James Heckman, Nobel Prize winner from the University of Chicago, has a paper that says, test the kid at three, and I'll tell you what his SAT score will be when he's 18. It's the exact same idea. And that's the problem, I think. The, the fundamental problem is that China grew too fast, and these rural parents... They, they see social media, they, they, they see TV, and they're in the cities. That's what they want for their kid, but they don't know how to get them there. And, and this is a problem in Mexico, in Brazil, in Turkey, and all these other countries have launched huge programs to help parents, when their kids are young, stimulate them and basically grow their minds. China hasn't done that yet. Uh, China's, they have a new goals to support parents of young children, but they haven't acted on it yet. Why? It's uh, the title of my book, Invisible China. Remember these 500 million people that have never been to high school that I think are going to be a problem in the next 10 years. They're not a problem now. If you go into the factory that assembles your iPhone or your Android phone, you don't need to have a high school education to do this. You're going, they're automating like crazy. The jeans I'm wearing five years ago were made in China. These Levi's I'm wearing now were made in Ethiopia. And that's because wages went up too high for too long. And when they got up there, companies automated, companies Re- relocated their supply chain. And of course, then in 
the aftermath of COVID in our in our trade disputes with China, right? That that all of these things have shrunk demand for labor, and we're in a new era where it's the my colleague wrote a paper called "The End of Cheap Wages." Wages went up for 15 years in a row from 2000 to 2015. Since 2015, the growth rate has slowed. Manufacturing jobs are falling. Construction jobs are leveled off and falling. Everybody's getting dumped into the service sector, and wages are starting to fall in the service sector. This is the informal service sector, right? The, the guys who squat on the street and sell fruit and wash your windows, just like those guys in Mexico. But in Scott, she made it a very public central goal to eliminate poverty. So it's not like he is completely forgetting about every issue on the rural Chinese agenda. Uh, do you have any sense of why certain ones like, quote unquote, eliminating poverty get more attention than stuff like myopia or malnutrition or early childhood education? All for getting rid of poverty, but getting rid of poverty was easy, right? Who's poor in China today? I'm, I'm not talking about in 2030, but today, right? It's the elderly without kids. It's the disabled and of course, it's the non-Mandarin speaking minority groups that have trouble integrating themselves in the economy. Because up until now, if you have a, a strong body and that you can speak the local language, you can have a job and you're not poor. <laughs> okay. I don't worry about poverty. I worry about the 900 million low income. Terry Sicular and her colleagues have a fabulous paper written with national data that basically shows, hey, China has a huge middle class. It's 400 million people. Hey, they have 950 million people that are in low income, okay? And it's a lot easier to solve poverty for 20 million people than it is to solve low income problem for 900 million people. And I think that's that's the basic problem, right? And the myopia problem, the nutrition problem, the intestinal worm problem, they're invisible problems. Speaking of minorities and anti-poverty programs, this is this is what the Chinese government is claiming that it's doing in Xinjiang. Do you have a sense of how the kind of logic gets twisted in such a way where you end up with the situation you have now? When we started doing our work in Farip almost 15 years ago, we were working in poor areas. And sometimes we worked in minority areas and sometimes we worked in poor Han areas. And this was the Wen Jiabao, right? Hu Jintao, Liu Yandong was a deputy premier, very interested in education and health. And we had a dialogue going with them. We would report the problems that we found and the solutions to those problems. And when we went to any of the upper level governments, the, the, I don't care if it was the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Education, said, oh, here's a problem. And they'd say, where is it? Uh, you'd say Tibet or the the Zhuang area of Yunnan or in the Hui area of Ningxia. And the first thing they'd say is, oh, it's those old minorities. This isn't, we understand it's a problem. It's because they're minorities. Yeah. Um, if we went and said, this is a problem in Han areas, that's 93% of the population. And so we decided at that time that we were going to work, do almost all of our work in Han areas, poor Han areas, but we wanted to be able to say that this has an uh, implication for a much larger, it's representative of a much larger subpopulation than you know any individual minority tribe. So I, that's why we don't do work in Xinjiang, and that's why we haven't been doing work in Tibet or the minority areas of Yunnan. So that's why. The whole problem, the, the problem comes down to their, it's low income, it's not poverty. And it's, Li Keqiang says, Tan Fan Jingji, okay, that means these farmer market salesmen, right? The ones that squat in the markets and sell fruit and street yeah. vendors. Let's call them street vendors. That's a, he actually said there's 500 million street vendors that make 1,000 yuan or less per month. That's higher than the poverty line for sure, but it's still very low income, okay? So that's the problem, and it's Han problem, and it's a minority problem, but it's a Han problem. Yeah. Watching... The Chinese state turn its attention to Xinjiang and poverty. Obviously, was precipitated by by fears of fears of violence and whatnot. But like when you layer on the dysfunction of clearly they have a vision, right? 
for change, which is, okay, we're going to get these people into these camps and then we're going to train them in how to be good factory workers because that's what they were missing. That's not what they were missing. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a world in which this uh, all resolves itself by Xinjiang growing at a faster GDP rate than it would have otherwise. Taking the Chinese government's justifications for its Xinjiang policy in the recent years and putting the development lens on it, taking it with a grain of salt, even then it's just, no, like this is not the answer. And the way that you're going to like modernize thinking in villages isn't by forcing Han Chinese to live in the houses of these people. It just seems like completely not the smart way to go about changing rural mindsets and giving and giving kids a better future. Yeah. And again, that's beyond the scope of, of this work. And I think that's a big problem. I think it's, it's obviously become an international issue. I don't think that's the problem that undermines China's future yeah. growth. And I think that what undermines future growth is that they have one of the most poorly educated labor forces in the middle income world. And I think that... <laughs> These problems of Xinjiang are going to look small compared to what could happen. And of course, we're going into a new era, Jordan. Yeah. We have 5G. There's going to be 6G, 7G, who knows, 8G soon. Can you, and China is trying to develop 2,000 county seats, fourth and fifth tier cities into little urban centers. I, I have to say they're trying to make 2,000 Cincinnati's, right? <laughs> I don't see what people are going to do there. There's not going to be any manufacturing in those cities. There's not going to be any construction in the long run in those cities. And everybody's low income, so there's not going to be any demand for services. You know, what you know what drives growth in there? But maybe 6G technology gets in there and we don't need to learn so much and you can work productively or I, I, I don't know what's going. But I, I think that's the big problem in if in a modern economy as we know it. So, Scott, through your research, you've been able to estimate that 60% of children in rural China suffer from at least one of the following three challenges, nearsightedness, malnutrition, and worms. We've also spoken a little earlier in this podcast about the challenges of like rural mindsets and folk wisdom. One of the striking examples in your book of farmers regularly deworming their farm animals, but not even conceiving that this could be a problem in, in humans, as well as these eye exercises, which I've seen done in China, which are scientifically proven to be completely useless and is even more mind-blowing when like you can just buy glasses for 20 kwai and this problem is solved. So aside from the kind of obvious interventions of fixing water supply and whatnot, how would you rejigger the Chinese bureaucracy in a way in which it would pay more attention to these invisible but critical problems? So the first problem is nutrition problems. It's basically anemia. It's it's not stunting. It's not being severely underweight. It's, it's a problem of micronutrient deficiencies. There's not enough iron, among other things. And so we discovered that problem. We went out and we tested tens of thousands of kids, and we found out that 40% of rural kids in many different provinces all had this condition. It's invisible, okay? You can't see it and everything like that, but it's there. We then went and we did vitamin per kid um, per day. Gave teachers the vitamins, gave teachers a boiler, they boiled water, they you know had paper cups, they gave the And lo and behold, the anemia went down. And guess what? The Bureau of Education, the Department of Education in the province, the Minister of Education doesn't really care about nutrition problems, anemia. Right? The, the Ministry of Health does, but not the Ministry of Education. But... When their anemia went down, guess what? Their grades went up. <laughs> Ooh, we suddenly got their attention. We, we then had a connection over in Gansu, next province over. We did the first one in Shanxi. Went to Gansu and said, hey, guys, in Shanxi, we showed if they ate a vitamin a day and reduced their anemia, their grades went up. And they said, that is in Shanxi. Does it work in Gansu? And so we did another... <laughs> <laughs> intervention there. <laughs> their their water's better. Of course, it's fine. I know. This is what it... And okay, so we finally do this in three or four places. And it, it, we're having this conversation with with uh, Vice Premier Liu. And she came out and said, we got to do something about it. One year later, there's a National Nutritious Lunch Program for 26 million kids. Three to four billion dollars a year. And let me tell you, the schools implement that as well as they can. It's still underfunded, but it's there. So that's how you solve this problem. That's not a solution anymore because that we can't have these direct conversations with the top leaders anymore. Yeah. Getting to the crux of the matter of you, white guy, Stanford professor, 
being the one to drive this change. Or you have a team, there's Chinese collaborators, but why isn't Chinese academia and the Chinese government sort of addressing this without Reap's involvement? And what do you think the, the Chinese government is losing by cutting off these sorts of interactions, as it seems they've done in the past few years? Research is just like schooling, is just like pensions. It's locally funded. And so Shanghai and Beijing and Shenzhen, they give their professors a lot of money to work on problems of Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Okay, And Gansu doesn't have money to spend on rural education research okay and it's and there's just nobody to do it it's a lack of supply leads to a lack of demand for research on these issues from professors and when we've been very lucky to be at stanford and we have lots of great supporters who most of them are stanford alums or parents of stanford students and they've been great supporters. We then take that support. And I don't go to the village and interview these kids. We have to have local collaborators. And when we say, do you want to do this? Oh, our local collaborators are passionate about yeah. this work. So it's that's the problem, right? Is that it's right back there to... It's an invisible problem. It's also, this is a problem. Let's go raise the IQ of 10 million babies every year that aren't developing well. Guess what? When does that come to fruition, yeah. the results of that? About 2045, right? That's when they'll be through college. And that's a problem. And does even this leadership <laughs> that doesn't have to be elected every four years, I don't think they're thinking out that yeah. far. We've done the, like, is China a longer-term player than the U.S.'s debate a few times on China Talk? And it's... Like the easy, the sexy stuff is investing in semiconductors. This is where the real work is. And high-speed rails that you put your name yeah, on. Exactly. Right? But, you know, this is the exact sort of thing where if you were making the argument that China was more strategic and more long, long-sighted, like this would be where all the money would be going to. Because if you're playing a 50-year game, yeah, like the prospects of SMIC making it to the next node is far less important than whether or not <laughs> 300 million people are going to be able to read and write um, if you're talking about your country's economic future. And the fact 100%. that this is not what their lays are focused on, their lays are focused on, as you said, Scott, anti-poverty, which means giving an old widow $1,000 a year so that you can check their name off of a box, off of a list, just goes to show how there is real myopia when it comes to the, the, the priorities and, and the sort of long-term ambitions of the CCP. It's a hard thing to get your mind around. And you see the problem. I compare them to Mexico and Turkey and South Africa. And they say, China's not Mexico. Yeah. We're different than them. And I say, but you aren't doing the same thing South Korea and Ireland did. We're not the same as South Korea and Ireland. And you know what? The fact is they might be right, yeah. Jordan. Maybe this isn't a problem for a huge country like China, and they, they have millions and millions of college grads, it's still a small portion of their population, but maybe it's not. But I've said it once before, but maybe it yeah. is, okay? And if, if there's a small probability that this could really undermine the growth of China and, and undermine its stability and social stability and its, and its peacefulness, heaven's sakes, let's buy insurance right now. And let's not put, I don't know, $3 trillion into high-speed rails over the next 15 years. Let's put at least part of that money into zero to three, four to six, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, K to, K to nine, high school. How about let's focusing on retraining adults who are getting laid off their jobs in factories. And so two, I think that's what needs to be done. Two interesting points there. First off, it's, it's so interesting. If your leadership or your development economist sitting in a university in China, like, you want to think of yourself as this emerging global power. And if that's your conception, then you're going to want to study emerging global power type stuff. So, of course, your eye is going to drift towards the high-end technology and the... Germany yeah, and the U.S. It, it, but, exactly. but, but setting aside the, is China going to blow up because it's going to have 200 million people protesting because they don't have, they don't have a future question. <laughs> Just looking at this from a humanist perspective of if you're running a country, even if it doesn't cause social instability and whatnot, like the lack of attention that you give 
to these hundreds of millions of human beings who are really messing out on the future because they're not being treated well from no fault of their own. It's a real shame. I, I say that that's what I use the allegory of buying insurance. And then, but this is different than, because I buy insurance for my car. I buy insurance for my house. I buy insurance for, for my health. I buy, I buy insurance for so many things because I'm afraid that something might happen and I want to protect myself. And that's why China should buy it. But I hate paying my insurance premium because you're <laughs> paying a big insurance company. But this is different. It's just what you said. Jordan, it's just what you said, is the insurance premium you're going to pay for this is to give these 200 million, I say 500 million people, a better future and a stake in, in China's long-term rise to high income. And so it's a, you should be happy to be spending yeah. <laughs> this, this insurance premium. And believe me, the earlier they pay it, the more people are going to benefit and the, the higher the probability that they won't need it. <laughs> Scott, you, you, you alluded a little bit to the changing relationship that your organization has had with Chinese officialdom. <laughs> What's happened over the past few years and, and what do you think the, the current government is missing by not being as receptive to these sorts of conversations? So with local governments, we, we still have a very good relationship and that's because we work with local partners, right? If somebody from Peking University or Shanghai Jiao Tong University went out to a poor rural county and wanted to do an experiment on 200 schools and give you know kids in 100 schools glasses and kids in the other school no glasses until the end of the project, a big randomized trial. The local official would say no because he didn't trust that person. Is this a scam? Blah, blah, blah. And they're very worried about that. The local professor that we work with, that person in the Bureau of Education is her student and they trust her. And, and that relationship with local governments has held very fast and sound. What's changed is at the, the national level is that this dialogue between the top leaders and academics is, is basically that much weaker. And I think that, that there is a tension between academics and the leadership and that we saw that tension in our last administration yeah. in, in, in the U.S., right? And I think that some of those same dynamics were playing out there. I never went to the minister of education and sat down and talked to him, but my colleagues did. Right. And my colleagues were that we worked on together would go to the very highest officials in all the top leadership bodies. And that happens less now. And I think that this makes it harder to get your, your message across. And when you have a message that you say, here's a problem, here's a challenge, but we also have a solution. But when it gets picked up by the media, it says, here's a problem found out by an American scholar. Yeah. And then it gets interpreted as you trying to undermine right, the, the, the problem. Yeah. Luckily, in working on rural human capital health education, early childhood education, there's not a lot of... There's, there's no not export a lot of uh, like. Yes, exactly. And so we've been luckier. And again, we have great support by local leadership. And that hasn't changed. Scott, it's interesting thinking about it from that perspective of like it blowing up in the media. Because when you do something like declare victory on poverty, it's kind of like <laughs> case closed. It, it's not like, all right, now we're gonna, now we're gonna spend another 20 years talking about the five-year-olds. It's it's important what, what the government has done over the past seven years, but at the same time, you, you can't just close the book on these issues. Yep, I agree 100%. So what we're trying to do is the new initiatives in rural areas is rural revitalization or rural vitalization. And you know what I'm trying to pound through the message is, yes, they need drinking water and yes, they need more culture for the elderly in these villages, but they also need education and better health and early childhood development times three, right? Those are the nine things they need. Make that part of rural vitalization and you're going to get a big, you spend $1 on zero to three parental training and the return is $8. This is Jim Heckman did it in the United States. We did it in China. It's eight to yeah. one. Wow. So it's like investing in Apple or Tencent. And it's something that just has to, you know, to happen. So, so Scott, aside from becoming your PhD student, what are the ways folks either in the U.S., in China, or in other countries around the world could get in involved with these issues? Yeah, I told you, There's if you have enough resources to support us. When I first started working in China, 
we could get support from international organizations. We could get them from aid agencies. We could get them from foundations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Chinese government funded foreign Chinese collaborations. All obviously, there's no more foreign aid to China. There's no more foreign foundations. The U.S. government hardly supports any research in China anymore. So we're funded fully by philanthropy. 100% by philanthropy. So there's that part. <laughs> We're trying to get our the word out on this. We have a brand new center called the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institute. We're trying to make it a much bigger platform that goes beyond rural human capital. And it's going to go into trade and global supply chains and the environment and corporate governance and political governance. And what we want to make this platform on is a platform that we take science-based, high-quality research, empirical research, not just policy opinions, but empirical research, and change it into a palatable form, briefs, okay, and then get it out to the public so that we can school Washington and New York and Silicon Valley and other academics who don't work on China in what's happening there? What's the most important relationship we have in the world? And we're also going to have those conversations with our Chinese business partners and our Chinese academic partners, because I think that the amount of empirical-based information that's available in China is so rare. So the thing people can do is if you have networks of people who'd be interested in this type of research, but again, easily digestible research results, or if you have interest in and experience working there, we, we want to set up this network. And so we're looking forward to that. And it'll be something that it's something new for us, but we think it's very, we should have done it five years ago, but it's needed now. Can you pick two or three moments of Chinese bureaucratic history that you would like to have been a fly on the wall for? Which years and which departments do you think would have been uh, really interesting to to be able to live through? So if I was going to be a fly in the wall in Chinese bureaucratic history, I'm a fly in the wall of a village office. The one I would really like to see that this is not on the grand scale of things, but I would have liked to have been in the in the office right after the 2008 uh, financial crisis happened. China had announced in September that they were going to move towards privatizing land or at least making land rights individual and sellable. And, and I think that if you would have given 200 million farm families an asset like their own farmland, I think they would have been a huge step forward to avoiding what I've been talking about. Because suddenly they'd have assets that they could rely on as insurance and then move forward and spend more money on their kids and other things that are important to them. And then since October 2008, they pulled that back and you can't say the P word with land anymore. So... I wish I'd have been on the wall there. I'd like to hear what the discussion is on zero to three. We have, it is now a national priority, but when they come out with the plan, it's an inch thick book on the plan for zero to three, and it's 92 pages for urban and eight pages for rural, mm. but it's the rural kids that need it. How did they come to that decision? It's dumbfounding to me. that, And they had the information that said 45% of your three-year-olds have an IQ less than 90 yeah. in in central and western rural China, which is half of your babies. So half of your babies have this problem. And how can you not say, let's address this? And so I'd like to hear what that conversation was. The, the whole privatization thing, there's some stat that giving urban house dwellers the deeds to their lands is, was the greatest wealth transfer in global history. Why don't you expand on that, Scott, about why it's such a big deal that the farmers don't have don't have real deeds? Okay, it's easy. This is it, it relates back to the problem of you know the new dual circulation economy, which is we're not going to rely so much on foreign demand for our products. Trade's going to start to become less and less important. So we got to have our own domestic demand drive incomes, drive growth. And 900 million people are low income. Okay. And guess what? They don't spend money on services. They're, they're, you have 900 million people and they aren't going to be a driver of demand. And why is that? It's because they don't earn a lot of money in the first place, but then once they earn it, what do they have to think about? I could buy services or buy consumption goods now, or 
I could save it. And why do I need to save? If I have a boy in my family, there's a the sex ratio problem. Right? Then I need to save 500,000 yen just to get my boy married in 20 years if he's one year old or 10 years if he's 10 years old, whenever. Also, if I have health insurance, if I cut my finger or if I get a stomach ache, I can go get treated almost for free. And that's a great step forward. But if I get cancer or have a heart problem or have any sort of other serious health problem, catastrophic health coverage isn't perfect in rural China. In fact, you know, you often have to pay in advance to go get coverage in rural areas. So you got to save money for the chance that there's catastrophic illness and of course retirement. There's the average rural, you know, person gets 65 yen a month in pension payouts. The average urban person gets 3,000 yen a month. And so I have to save for my retirement. And so what's the other way? What other thing could have, you could have as insurance policy? Hey, your land. If you have land, you have insurance, right? You have access to, you have collateral to get a loan for it. So suddenly I have this asset that provides me at least part of my insurance that is going to relax this savings motive and can encourage domestic demand. I don't know why people don't think about that. And you can't say the P word, right? The privatization of land word. It's just not even, it's not even on the table. Scott, can universal basic income solve all these problems? (laughs) The problem with universal basic income is in the long run, it's hard to have a democracy with universal basic income, right? Because once you have 51% of your people getting universal basic income, they're going to vote really high taxes and nobody's going to want to work. But yeah, one thing China should be spending their money on is trying to protect the unemployed or the people who are trying to get retrained and giving them some universal income, at least until they can get retrained, that they don't stray into other areas. China maybe have the second biggest economy in the world, but it's 70th in terms of per capita income. They're not going to be able to give very high universal income and for a long time. And that's probably where the world's going. And I don't even want to go into this because, again, I'm a development economist, not a a macro futurist. We're headed towards a post-industrial society. We're going to have to deal with that. This is why sometimes the assumptions I make on where China's going is based on the industrial economies that we've lived in the last couple hundred years. But, yeah, it's a interesting question to think about but <laughs> the takeaway basically is china's too poor to solve this by just china's too cutting poor to have checks. sufficient universal basic income to solve this problem right they can't pay 700 million people to stay at home and play mahjong so you wrote this book before covid scott what if any impact has covid had on on all of these developments well it, you know it slowed china down for a while and rural incomes have fallen now they've recovered a lot as their economy has recovered, but wages are down and work hours are down for the the low skill jobs. If anything is accelerating that trend that I'm talking about, it's polarization starting now. And now, you know, does it snap back? Yeah, like it, it, in fact, it snapped back since last June. It's not back to where it was, and and we'll see. I worry about China in that. For all of our problems, the projections is we can vaccinate 70% of our people by June 1st. And China doesn't have a vaccination plan, right? Europe's behind us, but Europe's going to catch up and Japan's going to catch up and Australia and Canada are going to get vaccinated. And once that part of the economy restarts, I think China is going to face some really tough decisions. Do they keep closed? Do I make everybody who come in basically quarantine for two weeks? Do you want to go and spend two weeks in a hotel you don't even get to choose? We, we don't have that choice now, but I, I don't think I want to. COVID has a lot, lots of direct and indirect hints, but uh, yeah, China's done a great job of keeping COVID down and they've done a great job of snapping their economy back. Of course, the rest of the world's factories are also shut down. And so they've benefited from that. But I think that in the longer run, there could be some real problems that this is just nudged for. Aside from Sam Power cutting you a check, what should the U.S. government be doing to wrap their heads around and potentially address this problem? Since we started our center, the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institutions, I've spent a lot more time trying to school myself in in these issues. And I, I still think we have to be tough on China, okay? China hasn't played by the rules, and they need to play by the rules. I think we need to get Europe 
Japan, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the big economies of the world to come together. And I like to, I, I call it in my naivety, world WTO2. Let's get. We're calling it. We're calling it NATO for trade here on China Talk, Scott. Got it. NATO for trade. Perfect. That's yeah, a less naive statement. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but but and it's going to be hard because there's all kinds of different interests among all these these people on the on the other side of the table from China, and China is going to reject anything that's too unfair. And but I think that if they can find a set of rules that China says we'll abide by and then th- the job of the US and hopefully Brussels is to keep everyone following those rules because China does commercial diplomacy. They they say if you deal with us we give you lots of carrots and if you don't we hit you with big sticks. Ask Australia. But I think that if if we get together and get that relationship back on at least an even keel, and it has to be even, is everybody benefits. And and I think that this isn't a Cold War yet. And Cold Wars are not good for the world economy. They're not good for all my friends and families that I've worked with in rural China. And I don't think they're good for working class families in Ohio or or North Carolina. I think that's probably the thing that they, they need to do. And they, like I said, I think everybody needs more information. There's, we have a policy brief for writing about the views of the Chinese public and how it differs from the views of the Chinese government. And guess what? Everybody in China says, yes, Taiwan is ours. But a small fraction of people say we should use force to take it over. And during the Cold War, Jordan, we had a policy in the U.S. that before we adopted an anti-Soviet strategy, we would think, was it going to hurt the people in the Soviet Union? And we, we purposely avoided doing certain things because it would have negative impact. And where we're against the communist government of the Soviet Union, not against the people that live there. And I don't think that same attitude works now. I think we think the Chinese people are all this one big uniform group that's led by the the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And from spending time in China, that's not true. And so I think we need to have that understanding, right, of, of really what's happening in China. What do people think there? And the, the public says, we don't like the government putting money into state-owned enterprises. That people say the private enterprises are better, and guess what? That's not what the Chinese government says. And we should think about those things. Get to know China better. You know, it's a it's a real shame because you're right. There's I feel like there's almost no way that there won't be collateral damage for invisible China with all yep. of this stuff. And yes, it's it's incumbent on on Western leaders to understand that the mother who's not deworming her child. Her economic outcomes should in no way be influenced by U.S. China's tensions with the world. But, but at the guess same, what? It but is. But at the same time, it you know, is. it's also, it's also. This is on Beijing too, and um, oh, oh, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying that we know it's on Beijing. Yeah. That's why they have to come to terms with this. It is, it's sixty forty, right? A lot of it is us that we haven't, we've let it go by, and it, so. and it's just, it's like you could have done the dung playbook of saying we're not ready to challenge for global superpower status and pick all these fights left and right for another 20 years when you could have addressed the sort of low-income problem and these hundreds of millions of Chinese, which still have, have pretty poor lives compared to the developed world. And the fact that she has decided that, no, now's the time and we're going to push on all these different avenues and China's going to stand up and be strong. That's going to invite a reaction, which is not going to help these people. And it's a real tragedy, I think. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree better. I oh, Another message, if I could you know, tell the Chinese government is right, is remember, Deng, exactly what you said, right? Keep a low profile. It's not, you know, 70th country in the world and per capita income. It's not your time to become the big world leader. And you haven't proved that you should even be the world leader. So why try to do it, right? And throw around your middle income body. And it's a big body, but it's still a middle income body. And there's too many things at home that get hurt when you it doesn't come out. Scott, say I have a month. What is my dream rural China road trip? I would do it in the early, I do it in mid September and start in Gansu and just head south towards Kunming and Guangxi and go through Ningxia, southern Shanxi, Sichuan, Chongqing, Guizhou, just 
that following that it's the best weather in China is in the fall, right? And you just, you stop it. They, you can stay in very nice hotels in the county seat. There's lots of recreation areas in these areas, but then also make sure you get out and walk through the villages and just stop on the side of the road and walk in the village. The great thing about China is villages are open everywhere, right? You don't need any special permit or anything for them. And people are so nice. They'll invite you into their home and they'll tell you their stories. So you can have a great time, stay in nice hotels, eat cheaply, and see go all the way from North Asia to the tropics. Scott Roselle, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on China Talk. <laughs> Jordan, we look forward to having lots of interaction with you in the future. Yeah. 